that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast, your weekly dose of Italian American heritage, history, and hilarity. I'm John Viola, and I am joined by my partner in crime, the notorious POB, the Italian American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle, for an episode that uh, I think is going to be a real treat for everybody today because I'm very inspired by learning more and more about the two guests we have coming on here. And uh, Pat, I know you are because you put this thing together uh i think it's going to be a good one but first of all how you holding up what's going on what does that question mean how am i holding up? how's how's things it's a, it's a, it's a it's a why totally... would you ask me of all the years you know me what would possess you to ask me that question seeking a positive answer you mean that is because you're never going to get that <laughs> you're just not well never. No, i mean like i don't know how, how's it going like should I do a millennial impersonation? Jeez, I don't know. That, that's, <laughs> it's going great. You're happy. It's groovy. What, what am I supposed yeah. to say to that? Pretend you're happy for, you know, an afternoon. You think I could pretend? Can you pretend to be happy? But that mean, you're not happy. Uh, pretending to be happy. I can tell you for me, I'm in a very good mood because you and me and Ro and Joe and our team, we're going to uh, something I've been waiting for really for like, 15 20 years which is the big time feast in rosetto pennsylvania i cannot wait for that i'm very excited about that yeah that's true i i have never seen it as well yeah this is going to be it's an indictment on both of us it is isn't it that, that has such it's so rosetto was so famous in so many different ways have you been to rosetto outside of the big time no no i've never been that's what their feast is called the big time correct yeah the big time our lady of mount carmel then it's only i've realized now from up here in westchester it's only like an hour and 40 minutes from me. It's right across the New Jersey border. So I, this, what felt like a big undertaking is quickly becoming uh, real and exciting. And I can't wait. I'm, you know, I love going to new feasts that I've never been to, particularly a town like Rosetta with such a rich Italian American history where, you know, everybody came from the same town and for like generations, it was just kind of families in this town. So I'm really looking forward to that. And you know, nothing says summer like an Italian feast. We've had a couple of great ones already. You guys had the Lady of Mount Carmel last weekend in Newark. I understand it went really well. You know what was the number one positive despite the rain? All of Eric Lavin's work with the Italian Apostle of the Archdiocese in Newark, there was a lot of young people. That's so important. There was yeah. a lot of like, I would say, 25 to 35, there was a lot of young people in the procession. That's wonderful. It's all about the network. IAFL drove that into me. Yeah. Our yes. listenership, right, are the people who care. And a lot of times they're the only one in their family who cares. And there's a bit of isolation in the fact that um, they care about their heritage and they feel lonely because they're the only one rowing the boat. But when you put them all in the room together, not only do you build friendships, but that's when things really take off. And that's what came out of Mount Carmel and Newark for me this year. I mean, besides everything else that, that, that's happened in the past year after year. But that's I was very, very happy to see 24, 25, 26. That's really technically a generation behind me, because a lot of times, you know, John and I often have the conversation with the youngest people in the room. And that's scary. <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore, but that's that's the positive. So that, I think that was definitely the positive. Angelo DeRaymond and Christopher Corona from St. Placido in eastern Pennsylvania came out and they're in their 20s. And that was you know, the synergy and they met a lot of people in the, the, the North Jersey area in the same 
demographic voting with the same interest. And, and it was stuff like that to see these people come out from San Pachito. I'm sure that a lot of the Jersey people will now go out to Easton. And that's how you build a network. And that's why, and you learn a lot too. You learn a lot. They, you know, the same thing, you trade best practices and ideas and, and the like. So, yeah, I think that was, Mount Carmel was definitely a, a positive this year. All these things get better with the exchange of ideas, of interests, of passionate people. And, you know, it speaks to what we're going to talk about today because, you know, you and I oftentimes have this conversation offline, sometimes on the show, about that sense that you can sometimes feel lonely being passionate about something like your heritage, particularly when you are faced with an institutional community or a popular sentiment, a popular, let's say, messaging that says this is kind of a post-ethnic world that uh, or at least post-ethnic country and these things aren't important. And, you know, but the truth of the matter is we're always encouraged by going out into this community and meeting tons of people like these young people who are running these feasts or the young people that came to the IFL conference with us in Florida or anywhere we go, people that are doing this stuff out of a passion that's really coming from a, a good and healthy place that they've, they're not necessarily coming from any kind of chip on their shoulder. I mean, this is a, a part of them that they love and they want to share. And we have two guests on the show today that you arranged to come on and uh, identified both of whom are running very, very successful blogs and platforms and, and really taking the opportunity to share their Italian American culture and their version of it with a wider audience. And I've been really thrilled to kind of read up a little bit about, about these two ladies. The, the one positive of the two people that we have on today to show how much the network works is Maria's mother listens to the podcast. And I ran into her in an event in North Jersey. And that's how I found out about what she does. Oh. And we actually ran into Kate's father and stepmother at the Giglio in Brooklyn a year ago when we were taping the Giglio episode. And um, they, uh, Kate's father has an Italian radio program and his stepmother in, in Ulster County, New York, and they run an Ulster County Italian-American organization. And they're the ones that, that put me in touch with Kate. Huh. So if that doesn't prove that there's, a, if that doesn't prove the value of a network, I don't know what, what does. And the value of doing what we're doing, honestly. You know, this is one of the reasons we came out to, take on this platform from Dolores and Anthony was to be available and integrated into the community. So I'm very happy to hear that. I, I have no idea where my brain was when we were filming in the Giglio because I don't remember any of that. It was about 200 degrees and uh, a lot of stress, but I'm really thrilled and um, I'm obviously honored to hear that uh, Maria's mother is a listener. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome on Maria Del Russo and Kate Familietti to the Italian American podcast. Ladies, welcome aboard. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having us. Really, really excited to have you guys. First and foremost, because this is a family show, Maria, please feel free to shout out your mom uh, if she is uh -oh. in fact listening. She has been texting me all morning. So excited about the fact that I'm sitting down and talking with you two. So hello, mom. I can't <laughs> wait to hear about how you think my performance is on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will. I, for years, I thought my mom didn't listen. And then one time I said something and she, she called me out on it and, uh, and then since I then revealing herself now, she gives me notes when I'm done with these things. So, hi, mom. My mother has never listened. I could read <laughs> off her social security number on it. <laughs> no idea. Well, not it's... even my brother. My brother works for NIAF. <laughs> Your brother doesn't. My Isn't brother doesn't. Listen. 
My brother listened when we started, but I think he's just tailed off. I just I don't think I think he gets enough of me as it is. Yeah, I think once people get to know us, they stop listening. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> once people you... who really know us don't want to hear us. Yeah, <laughs> you only want a, a weekly dose at best. <laughs> and Kate, speaking of family, it, it's you. So your dad has a, a radio show up in Ulster County, correct? He does. So he's a big part of UCIAF, which is the Ulster County Italian American Federation up there. Yeah. Um, and they do a weekly radio show on Sundays and they actually rotate hosts. So him and my stepmom host about once or twice a month, usually. That's excellent. You know, I've seen a lot of the literature and promotional stuff for the Ulster County because you guys have a feast up there as well or a festival or. Yes, they have a big feast uh, Columbus Day weekend, um, which is amazing and awesome. And honestly, I mean, I grew up half in the city in New York City and half up there. And kind of my whole life and most of my dad's life living up there, we never really realized how big of an Italian-American community there is up there. Um, And I would say it was probably in the last maybe five years that my dad's become really involved with them. And it's just awesome to see just like how many people come out to this feast. It's pretty amazing. You know, Pat, that's every time October rolls around, I'm always looking for opportunities to do something different than the Columbus Day Parade in Manhattan, because as much as I enjoy the sort of family reunion aspect of it and seeing everybody at the same time, you know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. It's it's a it's a big undertaking. And it would be great to go up to Ulster County this year if the opportunity arises. I would really enjoy that. And that's not that far from us. You know what her father told me? Because now we're friends. Yeah. There's like freshwater springs up there. You love that thread of your alley. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Any kind of like healing waters, fresh water. You love that. I could bring up like huge, like the the big five gallon water jugs up there. Yeah. I don't know how you keep them cool. So I guess the water, I'm I'm sure there's a water expert out there who knows. I could see you doing that. I'm not saying where they are. Your father kept it quiet with me. I agree. People don't need to know where I I share enough on here. I don't need to share where the water is. That's like (laughs) my number one goal to go up there. I want to drive up there all summer just to get the water. He brings big jugs back for my boyfriend who loves the water. He brings them in like the big, like Carlo Rossi wine bottles. Oh, really? He's done with them. He just fills them back up with the spring water. Yeah. Can you taste the difference? It has like a slightly minerally taste, not in a bad way. Um, it tastes amazing. It just tastes really delicious and fresh. Have you baked with it? Have you made bread with it? You know, I haven't. That's actually, I love to bake bread. So that's a, that's a really great idea. I'm definitely going to try that. How about coffee? That's another thing. Coffee, same thing. I haven't done coffee. Oh, okay, you're killing me here. <laughs> <laughs> These are the kind of things that keep Pat up at night. If I use spring exactly water. Me up at yeah, night. It does, yeah. We, we, had, we went to Cleveland with a buddy of ours, Nick Fideli, and he took us to a place where they oh, the have a, an amazing spring and you can bottle it in gallons. And we took home. I mean, I finished a gallon that night. I, I I have no idea how I drank that much, but it was unbelievably good. It's like my grandparents spring on their property up in Delaware County. When I go up there, I could bathe in that water and just like sit all day. I think it's the best water in the world. So I think the one thing Italian Americans don't understand about Italy is how obsessed Italy is with mineral water. It's a good point. Because Italian Americans know it from bottled water, you know, like Aquapanda or Pellegrino. But the real thing in Italy is that there, every town has a, a fountain and a spring that people go get water from. It's such part of the, the, the Italian health digestion culture, but it's kind of a fun thing. People going to get water. I mean, not, now you can get water because you want to get water. A uh, hundred years ago, you got water because you had to get water. 
But yeah, Kate, I owe, I owe pop big time for that. Yeah, for sure. I'm like so excited. You have no idea. You guys should definitely come up for the festival Columbus Day weekend. I mean, my dad would love to have you. I'm sure he'd have you guys over for pizza at his pizza oven at his house. So this is getting better and better. He's had me on the radio program, which is a great <laughs> honor. Pat is our most requested guest on other programs, by the way. I think that comes as no surprise to anybody who's listened for a long time. Um, so, Kate, you grew up between Manhattan, Queens and upstate Ulster County. And Maria, you're a Jersey girl. I am a Jersey girl. Whereabouts? Um, my parents are currently in Morris County, but I was born in Livingston, New Jersey. Oh, that's not far from where I actually spent the majority of my childhood out in a little Irish town called Chatham. Oh, we're we're in um, my parents are in Chester, New Jersey. So I pass through Chatham on the train ride to Morristown when I go home and visit them from the city. Did you grow up with many Italian-Americans nearby? Um, when I was younger, yes, but we moved to Chester when I was nine. We moved from East Hanover, New Jersey, which is like a bastion of Italian-American oh, yeah. culture. Yeah. East Hanover is ground zero of Italian-American. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, um, but then... Alberona and Foggia. It's like they just sucked up Alberona. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when we moved up to Chester, we were, um, we were one of, I think, only a, a handful of Italian-American families up there, if that... Um, so it was really important for my mother to ensure that we were like going down to visit my cousins who still kind of lived where for like near East Hanover and, you know, ensuring that we had Sunday dinners with my grandmother. That was always something that we did. So even though there was not a community of Italian Americans around us, I really felt like my mother and my father were, you know, it was important to them that we maintain that part of our culture. Let's talk to you first about this, because you're talking about that return. I had a very similar experience in a part of the most Italian state of the union with no Italians. And so we did the same thing, return to the neighborhood, have Sunday. Sunday was a uh, it was a cult like devotion to Sunday in my family at my grandmother's house, who eventually moved down the block, like all my family moved down the block from us. But uh, your project now, or one of your many projects now, you're, you've been published all over the place in major, major publications, uh, L and the Washington Post, Glamour, In Style, Us Weekly. I can go on and on and on. At Playboy, you served as an advisor for the magazine's advice column, which I would love to dig into uh, at some <laughs> point. Uh, but now... The family show, John. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, but now you are heading up uh, this, this project you're calling Sunday Sauce, a uh, newsletter documenting your journey through your grandmother's recipes each week. And really, you're, you're working on a memoir right now that is kind of a bit of a how-to on preserving family recipes. Tell us how you got your grandmother's recipes, how they came to you, where the interest came from, why this kind of project. You're, you're, you're working at all these major publications. What made you want to dedicate yourself to a recipe each week and, and this kind of project? Yeah. Um, so my grandmother was living with my mother before she passed away and she passed away in December of 2020. And um, I actually moved home during the summer of 2020 because of COVID lockdowns and stuff like that. So I was living at my parents' house for the first time in many years. And we started digging through um, my grandmother's belongings that my mother still held on to. And we realized that she had this huge cache of just recipes that we had never seen things scribbled down. My mother had already been trying to, we've been kicking around the idea of doing a cookbook, but I was so busy with a bunch of other projects that I never got around to it. Um, and I had been writing a newsletter 
Um, I was, as you could probably tell by the Playboy byline, I was a sex and relationships writer for a really long time. I was writing a dating column. And around the time I met my now fiance, I was trying to figure out what I was going to transition the newsletter to since I couldn't write about dating anymore since I was dating someone. Um, and my mother kind of encouraged me to pick up the recipe book again. And instead of sitting down and doing the recipes, I thought that it would be a good idea to take it a week at a time, because I'm sure all of you know that when I say my grandmother's recipes, they're really just ingredients lists with no measurements, barely any instructions. And, you know, my mother and I cooked together a lot growing up. I was the only daughter. So I spent most of my childhood in the kitchen with her and my grandmother. And I knew that if I wanted to do a family cookbook that was legible to the rest of my family, I was going to actually have to cook through the recipes and put measurements to them. So one recipe a week felt manageable to me and it kind of gave me a structure to hang on to. So I've just slowly, it's been about a year since I launched this version of the newsletter. I've slowly been cooking through the recipes, kind of picking them up one at a time working through them. I have the physical cards with her handwriting in it. And, you know, through this project, it's really kind of shown me the incredible way that these legacy recipes factor into different parts of different family members' lives. Um, a good example of this is I had planned, my fiance is Jewish and I had planned to make my grandmother's pot roast for Seder this past year. And I was cooking it and he proposed while I was cooking the pot roast. And so it was this incredible moment where, you know, my parents were there, his parents were there, the pot roast was roasting on the stove. <laughs> and I started crying because it felt like my grandmother was there, even though she wasn't because her food was cooking on the stove. So yeah. that ability to kind of preserve that legacy and have your family members feel like they're still there, even though they're not, is something that has been like the most rewarding part of this project. And the thing that my readers really love to read about when I do write about this stuff. Yeah. I, uh, as our audience knows, I took over cooking holidays for my grandmother when my grandfather died, I was like 17. And now that both my grandparents are dead as much as it's a lot of work and, you know, I've been doing it 20 years there's nothing more fulfilling for me. The greatest gift of a holiday is to have somebody in my family say, wow, this tastes just like mommy's or grandma's or because you, they are there. Right. And, and mm -hmm. taste and food that there's really no tangible chain like food that you know, involves lives on. It's familiar. Um, so it's, it's just great to be able to bring people back to the table that are beyond when you can eat what they ate, eat what they made and have those tastes back you mentioned your readers really appreciate those personal aspects. How did you find your audience uh, reacted to your transition away from sex and relationships mm -hmm. and dating to uh, your known as recipes? I mean, that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's like if we just changed the topic of this show to, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Rock and roll, you know. <laughs> Well, it was definitely a big swing. And I could tell you that the audience of my mother was thrilled with the change. Um, she was very happy because she could actually start reading my stuff again. But um, I was very lucky that the writing that I was doing before I was doing cooking was very personal. So my audience, it was less about my dating life and more about kind of, you know, my life in the city and 
dating was part of that, but, you know, going through just like breakups and hardships and all this type of stuff. So I found that the readers that stuck around were the ones who were actually interested in kind of, you know, the evolution of how I came back to this part of myself, because that is another part of what this project has done. I was not someone in my 20s who was really um, excited about the idea of being an Italian-American. I fed into a lot of the stereotypes of being like an Italian-American from New Jersey. And it was a part of my identity that I was somewhat embarrassed about for a while. That, you just stuck a sword in my heart. I know. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm cured now. <laughs> I'm cured now. Trust me. This is like, I, I, it was really food that kind of had to bring me back to this. Where do you think that came from? I mean, uh, it, a lot of it was growing up. Like I said, we moved from East Hanover to Chester, which as lovely as a town as it is, it's definitely Mediganville. And I, we were not understood or I, I remember my father was driving his Cadillac down the street and someone called him Tony Soprano. So there was always a bit of a negative connotation to that and I was also young around the time of like Jersey Shore and Real Housewives of New Jersey and like one very specific representation of what being an Italian American from New Jersey is and there's a lot of good in those shows but there's also a lot of negative in those shows as well so I think that it was always something that I felt slightly ashamed of and you know you're a little kid. You don't appreciate a Sunday dinner if your friend is having a birthday party and you want to go to that instead of going to Sunday dinner. So I just feel like, you know, it was not something my mother really put it on us to be appreciative of that. And I'm so happy now as an adult that she did that. But for a while, it was just something that was I didn't feel much pride in. And I really am thankful to both of my grandmothers for leaving these recipes behind because it has really brought me back to this community in a way that I feel more accepted and more like, you know, understanding of the fact that there are a lot of different ways to be an Italian, a prideful Italian American. And that's something that is really important for me to express to my audience as well that, you know, yes, I'm an Italian American girl from New Jersey. You may have an idea of what that means, but that's not necessarily the only way to be a prideful Italian-American from New Jersey. That's one of the driving forces beyond the pod, behind the podcast Yeah, is because there's very few voice, a, 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 a twisted minority perception of who we are, right? Mm -hmm. That's a parody for entertainment purposes became our definition. Yes. And the yeah. what's fifty eight percent of John? What's fifty eight percent of the world's UNESCO heritage sites are in Italy? It used to be fifty five, but now it's changed now since the last time I saw it. But it's it's a it's a above fifty percent. It's a it's a plurality majority. I, I mean, know. listen, that number speaks all for itself. Yeah. And Chester's a a well to do, moneyed, educated area. For those Absolutely. who don't know, yeah. How could people with those backgrounds do a default of Tony Soprano? Would they yeah. do it to any other ethnic group? Yeah. So you feel that the recipes were what made you born again? Yeah. Is that where your salvation came from? <laughs> yes, that's what brought me back to the light. Um, I I really do. I, cooking was something that I was always interested in. It was always like the little bit that clung on, I felt like. And I always knew that I wanted to cook through my grandmother's recipes. And I think that just kind of, you know, having lost them and really feeling 
the hole that they left in the family. My grandmother was the one who did all of the cooking holidays. She hosted like 50 people at her house for Christmas day. Um, my mother has since taken that on. And, you know, in the past, it was always like, one day this will all be yours. And I would be like, oh, I don't know if that's what I want. And now I'm so excited for that. Um, it, it It's the way that my family really shows love, right, is cooking a big meal, having the family over and, you know, sitting around a table. So I really do think it was the recipes that brought me back. And I will say, to your point, John, that I hosted a pop up for the newsletter back in February, where I cooked through a bunch of my grandmother's recipes, a bunch of my family came, we hosted it at this bar restaurant in Brooklyn. And we had a bunch of I, I fed over like 120 people that night. And the most everyone said that the food was delicious but the most important compliment to me was from my cousins and my aunts and my uncles saying that it tasted like my grandmother's and that yeah. it tasted how they remembered it and i could like cry just talking about it because that's all i ever wanted to do for this project was to resurrect her in a kind of way and you do you you, you really do I, I can tell you you know, think about reviving recipes that i didn't learn from my grandmother that my father or his siblings will share and desire to have again. And then I'm you know, out doing research and obviously calling Pat or Rosella or people in Italy that I know. And when you finally get it, you know, I've, I've bought every old cookbook I can get my hands on from like Italian clubs from like the 40s to the 90s, uh, mm-hmm. church fundraisers for Italian parishes, anything I could find that has family recipes, because somewhere in there is going to be an approximation of my family did. And if I could piece those things together, it's archaeology in a sense. Right. And I can give you a fair warning as the audience knows and Pat certainly knows I've been cooking the meal for 20 years with my brothers and cousins, but I've never actually hosted until this year. I would say do not take on hosting until your mother is absolutely ready to give it over because <laughs> I suffered through Malokia Christmas this year. I know my mother and my mother-in-law, they just didn't want to give them up. And uh, whether they intended to or not, I had Huge Malokia Christmas fell apart. <laughs> so we'll be back to their homes uh, next year and I'll cook whatever they tell me. Uh, I am like a, a prisoner and I will do whatever I'm told until I'm told <laughs> I can have it in my own house. So that's just a piece of fair warning about the power of Malokia, whether uh, unintended Malokia. Uh, so we're talking about these family recipes. Kate, let's talk a little about your family, because first of all, I'm dying to get to why your blog in which you're sharing all of your family recipes is entitled The Two Bananas. I I, want to hear a little bit more about this. But you live in the same house that your grandparents have owned for almost 60 years, back and forth between upstate Ulster and down in Queens, uh, New York. You describe yourself as an Italian Jew. Your family is half Jewish on your mother's side. So you're cooking both of these things, correct? Exactly, yeah. Um, Recently, especially, I've been trying to kind of integrate the two cuisines um in kind of like completely new ways so i one of my um traditions now for thanksgiving is i actually make potato latkes um there was a thanksgiving a couple years ago that hanukkah and thanksgiving fell on the same day um so i made potato latkes so ever since then i've been making them for thanksgiving and so this past thanksgiving i made rosemary potato latkes so i incorporated rosemary right into the latke batter Mm. and then i served that with a lemon regatta 
so lemon zest in the ricotta cheese instead of sour cream it was it was amazing it came out really good um so yeah recently i've been trying to kind of incorporate these two sides of my heritage um growing up i would say i was closer with my dad's side of my family which is the italian side we were at my grandparents house every friday night for homemade pizza and every sunday for gravy and living in their house now is kind of amazing because i have so many memories tied with this house and the apartment that i grew up in in the city my mom has since sold but i feel like i still have the house that i grew up in because i live in my grandparents house that's the best feeling in the world that is like a fortress of solitude that nobody can take away from you i mean my grandparents house in brooklyn is still there my uncle owns it i lived there for a while after college and uh yes yeah, like they're there with you you know it's just it's such a an empowering thing i love the fact that you're hybridizing these two cultures explain to us first and foremost though where, where does the two bananas come from so the two bananas is a story that comes from my grandfather so my grandfather he was an amazing guy and he was like a real character he had all these sayings he would always say never go anywhere without a knife and a rope always carry a knife and a rope in your pocket no matter where you go you know he had the the neapolitan brooklyn slang words that he would use but he would also call people bananas he would call someone someone a banana kind of like saying stunad almost like oh what are you doing over there you banana hmm. So when I was a kid, I was probably about six years old. We were at my dad's house upstate. It was me and my grandparents and my brother and my brother's best friend, who were probably 11 at the time. And my brother and his friend, Josh, they were in the living room playing video games. And me and my grandfather were in the kitchen. My grandfather said to me, Kate, go get those two bananas over there. So I went into the living room and I said, Ben, Josh, Papa Mike wants you. You know, he's in the kitchen. He's calling for you. So they came in and they said, what's up? What do you need? And he looked at them and he was like, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> and I said, Papa Mike, you told me to go get the two bananas. And he said, I meant those two bananas over on the counter there. <laughs> literal bananas. Actual literal Actual bananas. bananas. Yeah, there you so go. That's, that's a story that gets told again and again in my family. So that's that's where the name of the blog comes from. That's wonderful. I think that's such a beautiful memorial and uh as I was trying to kind of dissect, maybe it's got something to do with bananas being present in Jewish cuisine, Italian cuisine. But I'm like, I, I, I don't don't particularly see them coming up in either of the traditional cuisines. So I'm happy to know that there's a heartwarming family story behind what you're doing. By day, you are a photographer. And I, I, ha I have to admit, I had to Google exactly what it is you're doing. I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce it right. You're an ophthalmic photographer. Am I pronouncing that right? ophthalmic i ophthalmic. knew i was gonna I, I see i thought optometry okay ophthalmic so you photograph people's eyeballs in a medical capacity correct exactly yep we have um we have about 15 different machines they're all specialized machines that basically look at the eye on like a near microscopic level and we photograph it they use it for diagnosis for tracking the progression of disease um so really how i got into my blog besides my family is just loving photography. So I do medical photography by day. And then in my off time, I love to photograph food. Um, I also work as an event photographer. So. so that drew you into food photography. 
drew you into cooking and sharing these recipes and stuff. And you're working off of family recipes as well. Exactly. Yep. How did you come across them? So most of them are either from my memory or, I mean, my, my grandfather was really the cook in our family. My grandmother cooked every once in a while, but from what I remember, it was almost always my grandfather who was cooking. Um, my grandfather passed away when I was 13. So I haven't had that direct influence in my life for a long time, but my dad and my uncles really keep those recipes alive. And one of my favorite recipes that really reminds me of my grandfather is jambot. I don't know if you guys call it jambot as well. Yeah, we do. My family. We could do a whole series on jambot. Yeah. My uncles, my two uncles, Mick and Larry, they make a fantastic jambot. And I remember a few years ago, I had so many tomatoes and zucchinis and peppers in my garden. And I was like, okay, I can't cook these fast enough. Like they're growing too fast for me to cook with them. And I remembered my uncles making jambot. So I called one of them and I said, you guys always made jambot. It's like one of my favorite things we have at, at parties and holidays. I said, how do you make that? And my uncle Larry was like, there's no recipe for that. He said, you take olive oil, onions, and garlic, and then you take whatever vegetables you have in your fridge, your garden, literally anything you want or have on hand, and you just cook it all down into a stew. And that's also kind of the way my grandfather cooked because, you know, he grew up in the Great Depression. Um, and even from his parents before him, you know, they really ate whatever they had on hand. And a lot of times they ate the scraps and things that other people didn't want to eat. So recipes like jambot I love because they're really taking whatever you have or even food that maybe other people are going to turn their nose up at and cooking it into something really delicious. Jambot has different definitions in different parts of Campania. It doesn't it mean like mixed up? Yeah, but it's different. The mix up is different depending on where you're located. Different different vegetables are used, different combinations. This, this is where Pat goes off on the tangent now. <laughs> um, it's a different, like the Cilento and Salerno, they just use eggplants, peppers, and potatoes, right? If you're closer to the city of Naples, they throw in every imaginable vegetable, more like a French ratatouille. Where my grandmother's side comes from, Piano di Sorrento, they actually even put in dried plums, mm. prunes, for reasons that I don't know. But it's a, it's a, it's a very... It's an academically, but I would say, yeah, jambot is jambot in a loose definition would be a medley. We'll use a, a medley, a, beautiful medley yeah. of vegetables that are kind of cooked together. And the zucchini makes it, when you're cooking zucchini and tomatoes, that makes it kind of liquidy. But I think that when Italian Americans came here, they used jambot as a cover all word for anything that was all mixed up together. Right. They'd call it like a sausage jambot or chicken jambot where they had like peppers, tomatoes, potatoes all kind of fried together. But that's another, following up on our last episode, it's an Italian-American taking a word that's predominantly in Campania and making it the workhorse for anything that's all thrown together food-wise. That's interesting. That's, you remind me of, even like in my family, where we used to have jambot all the time when I lived with my parents. And then, you know, now we see each other on Sunday and my mom makes her you know, full Sunday meal, but we don't have a lot of opportunities for those kinds of things anymore together, you know, and it's something that I need to bring back into the repertoire because when Nicole and I were living with my parents during COVID, 
and dad and I were cooking together most afternoons. It was a lot of pasta, a lot of beans, a lot of greens and stuff. But, you know, these kind of things, they were such standards of my childhood, but now they've kind of become deep tracks, culinary deep tracks, if you will. Um, you know, Kate mentioned some of the scraps and things and weird ingredients. And something I've been thinking about now is, you know, you both seem very integrated into the wider world. You're kind of with it. I've been accused of being many things with it is not one of them. So my whole life is sort of focused on this Italian American stuff in that case. And because Pat's my best friend, we eat a lot of the older recipes that people turn their noses up at the question I'll put to Maria first. You've got this trove of family recipes. Have there been any that you have found that really have kind of made you raise your eyebrows? And if so, have you made them and what's the reaction been? Um, not that have made me raise my eyebrows, but I've revisited recipes that I haven't had since I was a kid and realized that I actually enjoy them more. Like a pasta con sarda is one that I hated as a child because I wanted to put cheese on all of my pasta. And obviously <laughs> with a sarda, you usually put a mudica on top of it with the toasted breadcrumbs. But I made it for my fiance, who is kind of, you know, a sardine anchovy like head. He loves that stuff and realized how much I actually enjoyed it. My kind of guy. Yeah, he's, I he's, love that stuff. He's very happy these days being <laughs> engaged to me because I cook. He's my number one taste tester. So yeah, pasta quesada is a recipe that um, you don't appreciate, I think, till you're older. Sardines mm -hmm. and anchovies are overwhelming to begin with. I love that stuff. It oh. never was, that was never the case for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, I was like had... a child eating anchovies. I'll yeah. eat. Yeah, me too. I, I, yeah. I, but, but I think now, like those kind of things, you take a much deeper respect for. And you mentioned Modiga, and you know, it says I got older because my Sicilian side would just sprinkle it on all kinds of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. and, and Milanese had Modiga, and, and Swordfish had Modiga, and, and you, I've learned now sociologically, you know, that was a cheap alternative ground stale bread many families have added things to it over the years create their own recipes whatever but really at its core it's like sawdust in the bread dough it's a cheap alternative to not having hard cheese to grate and uh so you relish it even more now you know mm -hmm. as it stars in these things i i really love that have you found any recipes that uh might have been kind of stuff that maybe it isn't made anymore uh you know, I, Pat and I love to go out and eat tripe and all these different oh, things. Oh, wow. that stuff. Tripe is kind of my white whale for this project because my mother makes it every year for um, Christmas. It's one of our Christmas, like we have it every year at Christmas. And she, the recipe that she gave me was actually a copy that she had written down when my grandmother was still alive. So it was from my grandmother's book or from my mother's book, excuse me. And the top of it said in my mother's hand, this recipe will probably die with me, but it was part of our family. So I want it written down. And because the younger kids don't love tripe, you know, it's just not a thing that we really ate. But my fiance is a big fan of tripe. We were in Florence um, early on in our relationship and had tripe there. And I kind of, it's something that I want to do. I And kind of adjust her recipe ever so slightly um, and play around Why with adjust? It. Why is this uh, red light like flashing in your eyes? Like, <laughs> mm, mm, like, what is it? 
I mean, tripe's not that complicated. I mean, there's not really. No, 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 no. It's really bad, to be honest with you. She cuts the pieces a little too big. So they're a little too chewy for me, but okay. she likes to, she likes the chew. And so does do her cousins. I would kind of want to slice it a little bit smaller and see how that does. Um, the tripe I ate in Florence was also a little bit saucier than the one that she tends to make. So I just want to play around with it, you know, be able to kind of like riff on those recipes and make them my own. Isn't that part of this as well? Right. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> if I had those answers, this is all complicated. It's very complicated. <laughs> you did that with your uh, most choli, right? That most choli was a long, deep move. What's the word? Titanic, but not Titanic. That was the ship. Teutonic, what's Play the plate? Tectonic. Tectonic plates. Not, not platonic, tectonic. Tectonic plates. Yes, that took a lot out of you. That was a big crisis of consciousness, I think, to change your recipe. Well, I I think that the, the thing is that the Neapolitan Mustachola cookie, which is a spice cookie covered in chocolate, which I personally love. If you go back to medieval times, medieval times was the time of the spice cookie and spice cakes and fruit cakes. It was a very, um, it's a very hard cookie and nobody wants to eat a very hard cookie today because in the old days they were dumped in, they were dunked in wine to be softened. So I noticed that my mustachola were, um, they weren't moving because, you know, a thousand years ago, you didn't have a lot to eat. So you could spend all night, uh, you know, around Avrazera dipping the cookie in wine. So I softened it. And a, and a lot of Neapolitan food blogs had had that discussion. That's why I think these blogs are so important. Um, Molise kind of softened it maybe 60, 70 years ago. Because if you add honey and you add like an apricot marmalade, it's a really fantastic combo that makes it soft and chewy. And Americans love soft and chewy. And since I made mine soft and chewy, they've become extremely popular. That's why these blogs are so important. I mean, I think... I don't know if you girls realize what the importance of what you're doing on so many levels, because a you're the evangelists of your generation to the importance of preserving our heritage. The best, one of the best compliments I ever got from a listener. She said about the podcast is that she felt Italian American, but she didn't understand how she, how she could live it in this day and age. And I think that you're at the forefront of the millennials. That's showing that, you know, you both have very interesting, diverse, modern careers, right? But you have not, you've even held on tighter to, to the patrimony of us as a civilization, as a culture. And I, you know, I, I said this to John earlier. I have found that every Italian American who, um, if, if people's parents were, were, were immigrants from Italy, that's going to cause a very strong Italian um, connection just because you grew up in a house where no one spoke English and you were, you know, you were in Italy for your cousin's weddings and every other thing that was involved with that. But kids who are third, fourth generation, I found what defines them as identifying as Italian American, whether it be when they're younger or even as adults, is having a very, very close relationship or living with the grandparent. It's the Italian American grandparent that that is the decisive factor of why people connect or don't connect. Summer is for movies on Mediaset Italia. Every Sunday, pop some popcorn and enjoy Italian cinema on Mediaset Italia at 8.35 p.m. Eastern, 5.35 p.m. Pacific. Upcoming can't-miss movies include E Allora Mambo on August 6th and Caccia al Tesoro on August 13th. So go to the movies with Mediaset Italia this summer. 
Call your local television provider and ask for the channel today. It's interesting that Maria talks about evolving a recipe forward. And, you know, I, I had a similar experience with keeping eel on the table Christmas Eve and getting the younger generations to eat it. And as I have said on the show before, you know, we went from one little eel the first year, forcing everybody to try it to now we have to have two of them to feed everybody. And it's it's really relished and it's a real thing in our life again. So I, I love that your mom wrote that message and I hope that she's wrong. What's your mom's yeah. name, by the way? Diane, her name. Diane, big yeah. shout out to you, first of all, for raising your daughter right. So she's doing this for listening to the finest podcast in Italian America <laughs> and for guilting uh, future generations on the recipe in your own hand. That is that's very Italian mom. It, I love that. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, it was the guilt work, too, because now I have to make it. And it helps that, like I said, my fiance is a big tripe fan and he keeps asking me when I'm going to make it. So I have pressure on both sides, which is wonderful. He should come. To, we have a we go to a tripe dinner every year, John and I. Yes, oh. that's true. In in New Jersey, like so, message us. We'll yeah, come to our. He'll be at our table next year. Yeah, That'd he'll be, be our guest. He'll love that. that. Would be, yeah. No, no other place in the world you're gonna get four or five types of tripe in one night. So that's for sure. I, I, I Pat, you're absolutely right. You know, this is really what the underlying beauty of what both of our guests are doing is bringing it out to a new generation, their own, a new evolved version of Italian American. And, and, you know, me, I always hold very, very dear to the idea that uh, you can identify as being Italian in any way that you do, and it can evolve and has to evolve forward. And you have to, you know, keep track of the sacred, not the profane. And so if it's evolution, if it's evolving recipes, if it's how you share it in platforms like these blogs, uh, it begs a great question. How have you guys found the reaction from your audience are there italian americans out there are you feeling like you're part of this evangelism is it just being appreciated as people who are italophiles or fans of the food or food in general are, are you getting people connecting to it on an emotional level yeah for sure i mean i think that you know it always makes me feel special when somebody messages me or comments and says like you were saying maria you know this tastes like how my grandmother made it. Um, and I think that, you know, especially what I'm doing, kind of combining my Italian and Jewish heritage, you know, there's so many Italian Jews out there, whether it's Roman Jews, you know, Jews who are Italian, full-blooded Italian, or, you know, kids of generations, you know, who parents have married other, other cultures. Um, so I think that I, that's what I love, especially when I get someone message me, I have someone message me about something like that. Um, combining those two cuisines or somebody saying, I never thought of doing it this way, or I never realized that there was a lot of overlap with Italian cooking and Jewish cooking. Um, so yeah, those are those are my favorite kind of people who reach out to me for sure. How about you, Maria? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that Katie said. And Katie, I'm going to scour your <laughs> website now because my uh, I eventually would love to have Jewish Italian children. So that is something that is very exciting to me. Um, but it's interesting because I definitely get the people who are Italiophiles. I really feel like Italian food is having a bit of a renaissance right now as well. I see it all over social media and TikTok and you know, I feel like it's just everywhere right now. But 
the most special ones of course are when someone reaches out to me and is like I have not made this or have not eaten this since so like someone in my family passed away and thank you for reintroducing it to me and it's also interesting because I you know I start each recipe with a little bit of an essay where I kind of talk about my experience cooking through the recipe and hearing from other Italian Americans or other people who are cooking and you know cultures that are big food cultures saying my family doesn't write down recipes either and it's just ingredients lists so it's not even just about the food it's the process of actually you know seeing these recipes, cooking through them, working through them, which is part of the reason why I'm working on this memoir about preserving family recipes, because that is such a part of it that I feel like does not get talked about enough. The fact that a lot of these recipes are either passed down verbally or scribbled on a piece of paper and shoved in a drawer somewhere. It's, it's really cool to kind of be able to excavate them and share them with the world. Yeah, it's such a treasure trove to be able to have either firsthand experience with your loved ones at cooking at their side or a cache of actual you know ingredients lists or recipes whatever you want to call them so, some sort of tangible uh, ephemera that you can dig through or a combination of both and you know i think about how many people i encounter who say oh, i wish i would have asked someone to write this down or i wish i would have done it with them and you know you guys are great examples in our mission to not just evangelize, but make aware the audience. If you have those loved ones in your life, the older generations, don't take for granted that they're there. Spend a day, pick your favorite things to cook, cook it with them, ask them to write things down, interview them about it, where the recipes came from. You know, it, it teaches you so much about yourself. Like we had an episode uh, last week about Italian sounding food, and somehow we got onto the topic of tomato paste and when it came over to the United States and older immigrants, you know, I noticed... Kate, you referenced Sunday gravy. We, we've had that discussion a bunch, but you know, we always say if you use a word like that or if you use tomato pay, it tells you about the anthropology of your family. It oftentimes reflects when they came, where they came from, where they came to. And uh, I'm always trying to solve those mysteries in my family of how recipes got to us, who we inherited them from, how they changed. And if you have people around that can answer those questions, don't take for granted that they'll be there forever. Make sure to go out and do it because you just learn a lot about yourself. I hope you guys would agree that you learn a lot about yourself in these exercises. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say the hardest part about this project is that I feel like I waited too long because neither one of my grandparents are with me with where, and none of my grandparents are with us anymore. So there are times where I wish I could call up my grandmother and be like, what is this word that is scribbled down on this note card? But the beauty of it is that it's, drawn my mother and I even closer together because she is now my link to that. Um, so it, it's, it's really a beautiful thing. Have either one of you gone back to the towns of origin where you're from in Italy and compared the food and said, this is, this is just like grandma's or this is just like grandpa's. So I have been to the town San Giovanni Apito where my grandmother's father was from. We actually have family that, that still live there. Um, we have a cousin, Christine, who every time we go, she just cooks an incredible feast for us. Um, and some of the food is similar, but a lot of it, kind of like what we were saying with the jambot, is a lot of the Italian-American food is specifically Italian-American. So you can see a lot of the influence, something like our cousin Christine 
cook puts anchovies in everything um and my stepmom is a vegetarian and she said anchovies that's fine you're a vegetarian you can eat anchovies and my stepmom was like uh no <laughs> something like that the fact that she's using anchovies in the gravy in the sauces and everything that does remind me of my grandparents cooking but a lot of it is kind of its own thing like even the sunday gravy that at least while we were staying with my cousins that doesn't exist instead it's a super fresh tomato sauce made with tomatoes right off the vine cooked for like yeah but you were there in the summer is that right this is true we were there in the summer if you were there in the winter you would have seen the same gravy that your grandmother made really yeah maybe you know where is san giovanni piro the chilenco the salerno two hours almost two hours south of salerno ah okay because you also have ancestry from tejano from past conversations with your father that's on my grandmother's mother's side yeah and maria how about you yeah, we took a family trip to um, Sicily in 2017, um, and we visited Musomeli, which is where my great-grandmother is from, and then Nisalmeri, where both of my great-grandparents on my grandfather's side are from. Um, and similarly, I, it, it's like you see the like root of a recipe, but not ha- what the recipe kind of transitioned into which was really interesting. And I think, you know, you know, and, and obviously we're not, I'm not from the region around Florence, but going to Florence, tasting the tripe, that's where, you know, it, you eat tripe is in that area. Um, it's cool to kind of see, like, you see like the first chapter of a recipe, which is really, really cool. And I think that the cool thing about the recipes that I cook, and I'm sure Katie, you would agree, is that the, I feel that the recipes that I cook are very Italian-American. They're not necessarily Italian, which is a distinction that I don't think I really understood until I started digging down into, you know, the roots of a lot of these recipes and kind of seeing how they developed. But um, it was it was really, really interesting. And I like the idea of kind of bringing a little bit of that back into my recipes and kind of reintroducing, you know, the original taste back in a little bit. I got to give my grandmother credit. You know what blew me away, John? In Piano di Sorrento, because that's where her mother's from. That was her culinary tradition. My Everything was exactly the same. <laughs> she kept my it. My grandmother was ultra orthodox. <laughs> there wasn't even any... My grandmother used to make a potato salad with oil, vinegar, red onions, black olives, cucumbers if she had an oregano on top. And I was in Piano di Sorrento one June and it was exactly an encounter. And I said, I got to give my grandmother credit. Maybe is that where my fastidiousness comes from? John? I was going to say, you are like the Taliban of Italian American. Yeah, cuisine, maybe so that's yes. where my Taliban gene comes from. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely no diversion at all. <laughs> your fundamentalism around. Yeah, I am a fund. Well, I belong to. I don't know if you guys know. I belong to a society in Sorrento called Fundamentalist Gastronomics, and that's a very hard. It's only for Sorrento food gastronomics. It's very hard. It's like the French. It's like the Academy Francaise to get into. <laughs> we we spend a lot of time on Facebook arguing over the true authenticity of recipes, and I have come out on top many times because yeah. I have said, which is true, is that their food evolved. So I will argue back and say, this was the way it was made. And then people will argue and then someone will come out and say, oh, oh, yes, I remember my grandmother making that way in the 60s or 70s. So people forget, too, that, yes, we evolved. Italian-American food evolved in America. But in the same way, it also evolved in Italy. Mm -hmm. Because my grandmother made a lasagna. It's it's an interest of time. I'll keep it short. But my grandmother's 
ingredients and procedure, they all told me it was not authentic until I dug in and we got all the older people and the older people like, oh yeah, that's how we made it. And it kind of transitioned in the 60s and 70s because from the 60s and the 70s, they started to replace the regatta with bechamela because that was the popular thing in Italy at the time. So yes, John, I am a fundamentalist. <laughs> I never would ever get a tattoo in my life. That's not my thing. But to quote Mike Giordano, I might get gastronomic butana. That would be one. <laughs> that would be one. And gastronomic fundamentalist. Could I put one on each arm? Yes. <laughs> like the jail ones, like on your, yeah, on your forearm. Perfect. I sheave but... needles and stuff like that. But if I was going to do it, that was going to be it. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would pay to be there with the camera. Do you think you... I should do a blog and quote gastronomic butana? <laughs> wow. I would read are it. me now. <laughs> yes, I don't it think is. they'd look at me on the picture on the blog and think of gastronomic butana. But <laughs> maybe no. if they read it, it would all kind of make sense. Well, I would love to see you have a blog and you've got two very successful role models to follow off of here. And I am so impressed and, and thrilled to have our guests on today. You guys are both doing great work. And, you know, that distinction between Italian-American and Italian cuisine and culture, I think having representatives like you guys out there, it takes our Italian-American culture to yet another level. And it forces people, frankly, to take it more seriously, as they should, because it's this amazing, wonderful, evolutionary hybrid culture that uh, we love and we get the joy of coming to talk about every week here on the show. And I know you guys get the joy of uh, sharing the culinary aspect of it with such wide audiences. So congratulations on the great work. So make sure you go out, follow these blogs. These two are doing great work. Message them, send them information, interact. We love the exchange of ideas. And post, post, post. Yeah, post. Especially it. the antique people like me. You're still on Facebook. Post it, repost it, post it, post it when they have a good recipe. Follow it. We got to support the people who are supporting us. Amen. To and that. then when they come out with the books, they'll come back with the books and then you can buy their books. <laughs> Amen. If you're going to do books, you should do books. Yeah. You I would have you a book. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have you back on when they're out. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, Pat's absolutely right. We got to make a point, support the people who are doing such great work. And, uh, and you're going to learn a lot too. So. We are a tribe. You have a tribe. Support the tribe. No, always support the tribe. That's what this is all about. Support the tribe. Follow these two ladies. Follow the Italian American podcast. Make sure you come back next week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano.